glad you guys came out. We got a couple more, couple more weeks of this. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna jump right in. Stephen is back with us, Eugen, and he is actually going to teach on one of my most favorite subjects in the Bible on the Tabernacle of David. Um, it was this particular study several years ago that just opened up, um, opened up my heart to the heart of God like I had never experienced before. Because we tend to look at the Old Testament through a different lens than the, than the New Testament. But when you see the New Testament, the New Covenant actually embodied and practiced in the Old Testament, it's like, holy cow. And you're going to have some uh, um, that experience this morning. I really pray that the, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation just really hits all of our hearts today as you, as you pay attention to what's fictionally to be presented to you. Um, it really is life-changing. So let's pray. I'm going to hand over to Stephen. He's going he's gonna to lead us. So, Lord, we love you. This is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We will rejoice in spite of how we might feel, what we might think today, Lord, or um, whatever the world has offered us this past week. Lord, we just lay all those things aside that easily entangle us, and we fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So thank you today, Lord. Thank you for Stephen and God bringing him here this morning. I pray, Lord, you fill his mouth, God, with your anointed word today. And, Lord, I'm, I know, Lord, we are going to eat really, really well today, God. We're going to eat really, really well. But, Lord, we don't want to limit it to what we just eat, Lord. We actually want to put this into practice and let the uh, overflow of it, God, affect us in the days and weeks and months to come. So thank you today, Lord. Just meet, meet us where we are today, God, and in our individual lives, God, and just let your word of truth come in and do some things in us that will really bring about true transformation. Lord, we're not after just information. Lord, we got so much information. Lord, just bring revelation, God, spirit of wisdom and revelation. Lord, enlighten the, the eyes of our heart today in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And before I hand it over to uh, Stephen, I'm going to embarrass him just a little bit because he got engaged last night to this beautiful lady named Pam. So, um, so that's why he's really smiling. And a little tired. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. So welcome. How are y'all doing this morning? Good. All right. So uh, we are talking about the Tabernacle of David this morning. And you might think, wow, that sounds really boring. So um, I, I, I assure you it's not a d boring subject, even though the wording of it might seem like it is. How many of y'all have feel like you've given a little bit of study to the Tabernacle of David? All right. And how many of you are like, I'm not even sure I know exactly what the Tabernacle of David is. OK, good. All right. So <clears throat> and then everybody else is in between. So, uh, yeah, this isn't a like an everyday topic that you would talk about, you know, hear sermons on. But. Um, it's a very important topic to us because, again, what we're talking about uh, during these, these four Elevate classes is why 24-7? Like, why did we do 24-7 worship and prayer at the House of Prayer? Like, why would that even be a thing? And key to that is the Tabernacle of David and verses that we have about the Tabernacle of David. So um, I, hopefully this, this hour that we have together... Um, will be enlightening as, as far as how in the world that even applies to what's going on today and why we do 24-7 
worship and prayer because what we say is that what we're doing is 24-7 worship and prayer in the spirit of the Tabernacle of David. So IHOP Atlanta is doing 24-7 worship and prayer in the spirit of the Tabernacle of David. So if we're doing it in the spirit of the Tabernacle of David, then maybe it makes sense to figure out what was the Tabernacle of David so that we know what that means, right? And again, all of that sounds really dry and dull, but hopefully it won't be. Hopefully you'll find this isn't really dry and dull. So let's look at this. We're on Roman numeral two, the original Tabernacle of David. We're going to look at the establishment of the Tabernacle of David. And uh, it says there, number one, after bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, David established 24-7 prayer and worship before the presence of the Lord. Unceasing worship continued at the Tabernacle of David for 44 years. So I want to just read through these bullet points, A through F, real quick, and give you this timeline. So just try to get your mind around this, okay, Uh, about what's going on. So after the exodus from Egypt, God began to dwell in the midst of his chosen people with his presence being manifest above the Ark of the Covenant in the Tabernacle of Moses. Under the rule of the judges in the land of Israel, The Ark of the Covenant remained in the tabernacle of Moses. The Ark was captured by the Philistines while Eli was judge of Israel. After seven months, the Philistines sent the Ark back to the outskirts of Israel because of the devastation the presence of the Ark brought upon them. D, the Ark stayed in the outskirts of Israel for 20 years. E, finally, David decided to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem where he placed it in what is referred to as the Tabernacle of David. The Tabernacle of David is when is where unceasing worship before the Lord was first established on earth. And as we read through that, you're probably like, see, I told you this was going to be boring. That's dry and dull, a history lesson. Who cares? So I want to take it and let's go step by step and let it really hit our hearts what's going on. Because I don't know how much thought people give to this. Do you, do you, have you ever stopped to just like think about the devastating effects of the fall, the devastating effect of the fall, man, woman created in the in the Garden of Eden, and they're walking with God on the planet. They're walking with God on the planet, full access to the God of the universe, the one who created everything, the moon and the stars, the planet, the animals. The furthest reaches of the solar system, the, all of the galaxies, the universe, the one who created all of that, God is walking with man on the planet, on this planet. Out of all the universe, he's on this planet walking with man. And at the fall, we lose that. The devastating nature of the fall of man. And what happens that's in this timeline right here, under A there, we say after the exodus from Egypt. So remember, Abraham gets called, right, called by God. He's like, you're going to have this land. But then they end up in Egypt, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel are God's chosen people, but they end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, right? So they've got this promise, but they're living in slavery. Then the exodus happens under Moses, And Moses takes them out of Egypt and on the way to the promised land. In the midst of that journey to the promised land, a stunning thing happens that so often just flies over our head. And the stunning thing is this. God meets with Moses on the mountain and says, if you'll put up this tent, 
I'm going to live in it in your midst. If we miss that, the God of the universe is returning to the planet to live in the midst of people once again. And he's chosen a particular people to do it with. The people of Israel, they've come out of slavery. They're in the midst of the exodus on their way to the promised land. And God goes, no, I want to dwell in the midst of people once again. It had not happened since the fall of man. This is a stunning thing. He's like, no, if, if you'll build this thing and you'll build this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this box all covered with gold and it had these two angelic type things, these two cherubim over the top with their in- wings outstretched. And sitting over that, the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord manifest. And he goes, build this thing, the Tabernacle of Moses is what it was called. And he builds this tent structure. And I don't know if you know this, but I just saw this when you walk in this room or walk out of this room on, on the right. There's actually a picture of the Tabernacle of Moses right there with everything laid out. Picture of the Ark of the Covenant, all that. All of that's what's right outside your door. So after this, you can go look at it. But that's the Tabernacle of Moses. And that, that Ark of the Covenant with the presence of God right there above the mercy seat is what they called it. The, the wings of the, outs, the outstretched wings of the cherubim, they called the mercy seat. And the presence of the Lord is right there. And, and so in this tent, God's dwelling in the midst of man once again. Hadn't happened since the fall. And he goes, no, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to go with you in your midst. All right, so we can't miss that piece. That's what's going on with the tabernacle of Moses. All right, so that was A. And I've given you uh, verse references. You can go back and study this out if you want. Uh, B, under the rule of the judges in the land of Israel. So after the exodus, they make it to to the promised land, right? Moses doesn't get to go in, but Joshua does, right? And so they, they go in, and they get established in the land, and then they don't have a king, but they're ruled by judges, right? So the entire time they're being ruled by judges, the Ark of the Covenant's still there, the presence of the Lord is still there, and it's still in that tent structure. There is no temple, right? It's still in that tent called the Tabernacle of Moses. That's still there, but now it's in the land of Israel, right? So the Ark of the Covenant's still there, and worship is continuing there um, as it had been in the wilderness. So that's all through the rule of the judges. Well, then what happens under Eli, who's the, the judge of Israel at the time, he has two wicked sons, and he does nothing to correct them. They're out of control, and God goes, you know what? I don't like this, and the Ark actually gets captured by the Philistines. Like this thing where the presence of God was dwelling in their midst and they, they had so little regard for it that God goes, okay, if you're going to treat it, my presence that way, then you're not going to have it anymore. And the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the presence of the Lord was manifesting in their midst. They lost that. And again, we, that's another thing we miss. It's not about this box disappearing. It's about the fact that since Eden, nobody had ever had God just dwelling in their midst. Then a people get that and they treat it with such disregard that he goes, we're not doing that anymore. And the ark gets taken away. Well, you might think that was a triumph for the Philistines, which on the first day it was. But then with the ark dwelling in their midst, they all start dying and getting tumors. And they're like, ah, this is not good to have this box thing here because, yeah, it's it's devastating us. So they're like. Let's send this thing back. And so they send it back to Israel, um, but it doesn't make it all the way back to Jerusalem. And, and so it's between Philistine area and Jerusalem, and the, it just kind of stays there. 
And the people of Israel, they don't know what to do with it. They, they don't do anything with it. They just leave it there on the outskirts. All right, so that's what's happening uh, in C there. The ark was captured by the Philistines while Eli was judge of Israel. After s- seven months, the Philistines sent the ark back to the outskirts of Israel because of the devastation the presence of the ark brought upon them. And the ark stayed on the outskirts for 20 years. For 20 years. All right. So finally, David decided to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, where he placed it in what's referred to as the tabernacle of David. So remember, when it got taken away, it was in the tabernacle of Moses. When it gets brought back, it's in this new thing that's referred to as the tabernacle of David. All right. So that's that's the topic that we're talking about, this tabernacle of David. It's this other tent now where the Ark of the, of the Covenant is and the presence of the Lord is going to dwell. So the Tabernacle of David is where unceasing worship before the Lord was first established on the earth. All right, and we're going to see that. So let's turn over and look at First Chronicles 16, 1 through 7. It says, And they brought in the Ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Then on that day, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. All right, and then let's look at that verse 37 as well. So he left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually, continually. All right, so he's got them there, and it says that they're there to celebrate, uh, to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. And then it goes on to say that Asaph, who's a musician, and his family, his relatives, they're to minister there before the ark continually, continually. Now, think about this. Well, we're going to get to it in, in just a minute, uh, all the differences between the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of David. But I just want to point out this. These guys actually are not separated from the ark by a curtain that nobody's allowed to enter in. They're before the ark continually. And remember what's right there above the ark above the mercy seat. It's the presence, the literal presence of God being manifest. And they're there continually worshiping. The presence of the Lord manifest before their very eyes. And they're there continually. All right, let's look at some more of the details. First Chronicles 9.33. These are the singers, heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in that work Day and night, day and night. So these singers are there worshiping before the Lord day and night continually. And uh, one of the things that I didn't uh, bold in this passage, but it but you get people going, okay. so you're a musician at IHOP, the house of prayer. Yeah. And what do you do? Well, I worship the Lord like we do 24 seven worshiping the Lord. So what's your primary thing that you do there? They're like, what's your work, though? No, I worship. No, but what do you do do? We know you worship, but what do you do do? Uh, I worship. I lead worship. That's what I do do. We do that 24-7, and that's my main thing is I do worship. And, like, you get paid for that? 
Like you actually get paid for that? Don't you need to do something worthwhile to get paid to do, to like to minister, right? That's like minister. Like you don't just minister to the Lord, right? No, I, I minister before the Lord. Well, is that legitimate to get paid just to do that? And this verse says, know that there were these guys that God says, I want you, your occupation is to worship me night and day. And he, go, he says they were exempt from other duties. There were other people who were taking care of, of the stuff that had to happen for the tabernacle of David to work. But there were musicians and it was their job. They were paid for it to worship the Lord night and day. That's how much importance and emphasis the Lord put on. He goes, no, I want these guys not to have to do anything else so that they can do this. All right. So then first Chronicles 25, six through seven. All these were under the direction of their fathers for the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, stringed instruments and harps for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman were under the authority of the king. So there are these three main guys, Asaph, Jeduthun, and Heman. And they're under the authority of the king. So they're answering to David, right? And it says, so the number of them with their brethren who were instructed in the songs of the Lord, all who were skillful, was 288. So there's 288 family members from those three families. They got the heads of the families. Three families make up 288 people that are musicians who are continually before the Lord. And it says uh, that they were divided into groups of 12. All right, and I've given you the verse reference for that, but divided into groups of 12. And so what's interesting about that, if you take 288 and you divide it by 12, you get 24. So because they're continually worshiping before the Lord, it it looks like groups of 12 are going in one-hour sessions. You know, they're leading worship for an hour a day. Or it could be that they do two hours a day and go work every other day. But regardless, just the fact that it's easily divisible by 12, by 24 makes us go, okay, in some way these guys are dividing up the work and they're taking shifts and continually worshiping before the Lord, unceasing worship before the Lord. And remember, we said this goes on for 44 years under, no, is that what, yeah, 44 years under David. All right. Let's see. B, the tabernacle, we're at the bottom of page two. The tabernacle of David spoke of a different reality than the tabernacle of Moses and then later the temple. Right. So before the tabernacle of David, you have the tabernacle of Moses. After the tabernacle of David, you're going to have the temple. All right. But the tabernacle of David completes of a speaks of a completely different reality. And it's actually a foreshadowing of Jesus. All right, the tabernacle of David is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus. So turn over to the next page, and what I want to do is you got two lists there. One is of the tabernacle of Moses and the temple. The other is the tabernacle of David. And I want you to think of this more as a table than two different lists. Okay, so A in the first one lines up with A in the second. B in the first one with B in the second. Make sense? I'm going to read it to you that way. So in the tabernacle of Moses and the temple, there was a blood sacrifice day after day. People were bringing animals to be sacrificed before the Lord. Remember that? Both in the tabernacle of Moses and in the temple. That's the way it worked. But what happened at the tabernacle of David? There was one sacrifice. At the beginning, we read the verse, there was one sacrifice at the very beginning. But then after that, there were not animal sacrifices there. All right? B, 
in the tabernacle of Moses in the temple, only certain ones can go before the presence of the God on one day. So it's actually the high priest one day a year. The day of atonement was able to go before. Right. The high priest one day of the year was able to go behind that curtain. Remember, there's the curtain and that whole most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was and the presence of the Lord was there. One guy one day a year could go in. But what's happening in the tabernacle of David? All these guys are ministering before the presence of the Lord right there, staring at the Lord and his presence day after day. All right. Let's see. See. In the tabernacle of Moses and the temple, worship and intercession were in the form of animal sacrifices, where in the tabernacle of David, worship and intercession were with instruments and voices. That's how worship occurred there, how intercession occurred, with, with instruments and voices instead of animal sacrifices. And then D, in the tabernacle of Moses and the temple, a veil separated man from the presence of God. But in the tabernacle of David, there were no veils. All right, and we're going to come back to this idea of, of this um, representing Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and what's available to us. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But for a second, I want to talk about the guy who started the Tabernacle of David. It's not too hard to guess what his name is, right? David, right? That's why we call it the Tabernacle of David. David is the one who implements the Tabernacle of David. And I want to talk about how what a profound effect and influence the Tabernacle of David ends up having on his life. All right, so let's look at Psalm 84, verses 1 through 10. Normally when you read Psalms, you don't read the little introduction, but I included the introduction for a purpose. It says, For the director of music, according to Gittith, of the sons of Korah, a psalm. So when you read that, you could get the impression that this was written uh, by the sons of Korah, but most commentators believe this was written by David, and it's pretty convincing when you look at it that this is written by David and, and the of the sons of Korah, means for the sons of Korah, it means that, hey, I've got these lyrics, maybe you put it to music or whatever, but this is actually uh, David writing the words, okay? We got a wasp? Oh, good. Yeah, we can pause for the wasp. We, we can take a little pause and make sure he's <laughs> under control. <laughs> All right. No more wasp. All right. Let's see. So now let's, so this is David writing. Let's re read what he has to say. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, for they are ever praising you. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And I've put that part in bold. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself near your altar, Lord Almighty. And this is what's going on. Like, this seems like kind of a strange phrase. He's like, he's talking about how awesome, you know, the presence of God is. And then he talks about sparrows and swallows and their nests. You know, like, what's going on? Well, think about what's going on. The tabernacle of David is there. The Ark of the Covenant is there. No veils around it. Like, you walk into the tabernacle of David, and there you're before the presence of the Lord. And it's a tent. So what happens when there's a tent? The birds come, 
right? And they make a little nest there. And David's like, no, don't drive them out. Man, do not drive them out. I wish I were one of them. They're actually allowed to make their home in the presence of the God of the universe. Their home is in the presence of the God of the universe. They're just like, best place on the planet. Like, man, I have found the hookup for my nest, you know. You want to raise your, your kids in the presence of the Lord, there you go. You just build your nest right there. That's what's going on. And David is going, oh, I wish that I lived there. Man, if I could just be one of those birds, I would, I would definitely do that. Man, if I, if, if I weren't the king of Israel, that's what I would be doing. Man, I would just spend all my time. I would want to live there. I'd want to have my kids there. I mean, I just want to be there all the time. It's like, this is unbelievable. He's so envious of the sparrows because they get to make their home there. And he goes, he says this. He goes, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And he's talking about the courts and your place. And, it, and so when he says your house, the dwelling place, your courts, what's he talking about? The tabernacle of David. So we, don't, we, we often miss that when we're reading that. He's not talking about the temple. There is no temple in David's life. Remember, David wanted to, to build the temple. And the prophet goes, go ahead, David, good idea. And then the next day, the prophet comes back and goes, oh, I spoke too quickly. God actually said, no, David, you can't do that. He said, your son's going to do it, but you can't build the temple. So David's life, anytime you're reading David, remember that. There is no temple. So any verses where he's talking about the courts of the Lord, he's talking about the tabernacle of David. And this is the profound influence that this place had upon. He started being able to go into the presence of the Lord just any time he walked through that tent curtain. And he's like, oh, man, it is so hard to leave here. My soul yearns and faints to be in that place where I'm there in the manifest presence of God, the God of the universe, guys. The one who created all things and is sustaining all things, actively giving you every breath you're breathing this very moment. And he's like, I can go into that presence and be there and look at him. Oh, my goodness, my soul is yearning. My body's fainting. I've got to be there in the presence of the Lord. And then he goes, okay, let's, let's, let's take a little side trip for a minute. Anybody like to go on vacation? Anybody want a vacation right now? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Think of your favorite vacation spot that you've been to or the one you're like, no, that's the one I'm going to, like the bucket list, right? The bucket list. You got that place in your mind? Imagine getting to spend a thousand days there, roughly three years. Roughly three years there. Your favorite place on the planet. Maybe it's not a vacation spot. Maybe it's like Six Flags. Yes, best place on the planet. Whatever. A thousand days there uninterrupted. No work to worry about. You just get to be there. No pressure. You just get to be there. And David goes, nothing compared to one day in the presence of the Lord. One day in the presence of the Lord. Better than a thousand anywhere else. Bahamas, Bora Bora, the mountains, a thousand days anywhere else doesn't compare to just one day in the presence of the Lord. It's like, oh, I so long to be there. This is the effect 
that the tabernacle of David had on him. He's like, man, now that I've experienced this, I don't want anything else. This is what I want. So we're on sea there, and that's what he says. It's a David again, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. All right. This may not seem like it, but this is actually a shocking statement from David. This is a shocking statement because he's saying, I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at my experiences. I'm looking at everything, and it all comes down to this. There's really only one thing I want. There's only one thing that I want, and it's this, to be in that place, to get back to the tabernacle of David just to be there so I can be in the presence of the Lord, gaze on his beauty, and inquire of him. It's the only thing I want. But what makes it so shocking that I think we fail to realize so often is who's saying this statement. Have you ever stopped to think about who David is? There had never been a military hero in Israel's history like David. He is the most powerful warrior that they've ever come across. He's a war hero. So think of the war heroes. You know, think of a General Patton. And think of the fame in, that a General Patton had in his day. That's David. He is the conquering hero, like that everybody's looking up to and respecting. But he's not just that. He's also the king. He's not just the military hero. He's also the king. So think, the, like the ultimate president, like think of an Abraham Lincoln, like in how we view Abraham Lincoln today. And like if you got to spend some time with Abraham Lincoln, like what would that be like? to just go hang out with Abraham Lincoln for a while. But he's not just the king and ju- or just the military hero. He's those combined in one man. Think of Abraham Lincoln combined with Patton. But that's not all David is. He's also the richest guy in all the land. Do you know at the end of his life from his personal treasuries, he gives from his personal, he had already give, set aside stuff for the building of the temple. And then it says from his personal treasuries, he gives this and it lists the gold and silver. Did you know it's over a billion dollars today? It would be over a billion dollars. He was a billionaire. So now think of a Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates. But he's not just Bill Gates and he's not just Patton and not just Abraham Lincoln, but all three of those combined together. We don't even have a person that's like that. Like, we literally don't have a person that's, that's like this. But that's not all he is. Because he's, he's also, you know, and the, the military thing of the day is different than the military thing of our day because those guys were like super athletes, right? Because they're not just like, you know, Patton's like, hey, you guys dropped some bombs over there. No, David's in there with a sword having to fight hand-to-hand. So he's like a super athlete of the day. Think of like a Michael Jordan. But he's not just Michael Jordan. He's Michael Jordan plus all those other guys added together. Do we have anybody like this? Like, this is insane, isn't it? Like, all in one guy. But get this. He is the greatest songwriter the planet has ever known. We sing his songs today. We still sing his songs today. 
The Bible is full of them. He's the greatest songwriter in all of history. And he, he sings too, and he plays an instrument. And all the young ladies, all the teenage girls are singing songs about him. They go, Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. I mean, think about, you know, those, the old fit, footage of the Beatles getting out of the car and the girls literally passing out, crying and passing out and screaming, all that. Michael Jackson, the girls passing out and screaming. But he's not just Michael Jackson or just Bill Gates or just Abraham Lincoln or just Michael Jordan. He's all of that in one man. I mean, we have never seen anybody like this. And you know what else? He's super good looking. He's super hot. And all the girls want him. He has, he has everything that we say is important in this life. He has fame. He has power. He has women. He has money. The billionaire. He has all of that. He's tasted everything there is to taste in this world that people say, this is what I'm aiming for. People set their life, I'm, I'm going after money, I'm going after money, I'm going after money. He's like, no, I've tried that. That doesn't do it. I'm going after women, I'm going after women, I'm going after women. No, I've, I've, I've tried that. It, it doesn't do it. I'm going after power, I'm going after power, I'm going after power. No, I've been there, it doesn't do it. I'm going after the arts, I'm going to be the, the greatest. No, I've done that. That doesn't do it. There's only one thing that does it. There's only one thing. I've tasted it all. I've tried it all. I've seen it all. And there is nothing I want more than this. To be in the presence of the Lord, there in that tabernacle where I can just walk into his presence, gaze on him, behold him in his beauty, and talk to him. I get to talk to the God of the universe. There's no women that can compare to that. There's no power that can compare to that. There's no influence that can compare to that. There's no money that can compare to that. I get to be in the presence of God. That's what I want. Man, if I could just be a sparrow. <laughs> like, really? You're all this, David, and you want to be a bird? Yes, I just want to be that so I can be in the presence of the Lord. Because, yes, better is one day. There's one thing I ask from the Lord, just one thing I seek. But one of the things that's so interesting about this is look at the very end of that verse, 27.4, and seek him in his what? Temple? Wait a minute, what did we just say? There is no temple. And that word is translated either temple or palace. Okay, well, the tabernacle of David was not the temple. And nobody's saying it's a palace, right? It's a tent. It's some curtains. It's not the fancy thing of the temple. You know what I believe is going on here? I believe that David walks into that tent. He gets before the Ark of the Covenant. And in some way, He's being caught up into the heavenly realm. I don't know if he's getting caught up the same way that John is, you know, where he's fully there. But I believe he's getting glimpses of it because there is a temple in heaven. And I give you the verses, but there's a temple in heaven. I think that's the temple he's talking about. Why is he so blown away by it and going, I got to be there rather than all these other things? Because I believe when he goes there, he's getting glimpses of the throne room in heaven that we talked about the first week. 
Remember where the, the cherubim are around the throne, the four living creatures covered in eyes, holy, 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 the 24 elders bowing down, casting down their crowns. He's there on the throne like a jasper and a sardius stone, an emerald rainbow surrounding him, a sea of glass. I believe David's getting caught up and he's seeing himself there on the sea of glass before the throne, worshiping the Lord in his presence. And he goes, no, in his temple. <laughs> In his temple, I go in a tabernacle, but man, I end up in the temple. And I don't know how he ends up there. I don't know if he's physically there or if he's just there in his heart and in his spirit or what. But I believe that that's what he's talking about. He's like, no, that's the one thing. Yeah, the temple, I mean, this little tent's fine. That's good. But man, no. And look what he says. All right. Look at Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. Again, a psalm of David. You, God. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. He goes, I've seen you in your sanctuary. I've beheld your power and glory. And I think that's what he's talking about. He goes in, he's gone into that little tent, and there's the, the manifest presence of the Lord above the ark. But he's like, no, there's so much more than that. I'm actually seeing you in that Revelation 4 and 5 throne room. I beheld your power and your glory. And he goes, that's why I know that this dry and weary land has no water that's going to satisfy my soul. There is no water that this world has to offer you. Nothing that you can taste of in this world that's going to satisfy your soul once you've beheld his power and his glory, his beauty and his majesty. Your soul will not be satisfied with lesser pleasures when you've experienced the pleasure of beholding the beauty of God, interacting with the glory of God. When you've experienced that pleasure, all these other lesser pleasures will fade away. And he goes, no, that's not water for my soul. Money is not water for my soul. Power is not water for my soul. Women are not water for my soul. Nothing is going to satisfy my soul except being there with him. And it says he wrote this when he's in the desert of Judah. And what's happening is he's on the run. He's fleeing for his life. He's got armies chasing him to kill him. And he's in a desert. You ever think about that? Like you can't just stop for water anytime you want when there's an army chasing you and you're in a desert. Like, that's a challenge, isn't it? So you're getting to that place where you're like, no, I'm going to die if I can't get to water, but they're guarding the water. Oh, we got to go find water somewhere else in the desert. He's like, this feeling that I have where I'm, I've never done a, I've talked to people who've done three-day water fast. Like, not, I don't mean where you're on just water. I mean where you're eating nothing and drinking nothing. And, and they say, no, there's, like, there's nothing that compares. Like a food fast doesn't compare to this. Like your body is screaming for water. Like I've got to get water. That's where he is, but he's in a desert. I don't know anybody who's done a water fast in a desert. That's where he is. His body is screaming for water, and he goes, wait a minute. This is actually how I feel about being in the presence of the Lord. This whole thing, my body is screaming for water in the desert because I'm so parched. That's how I always feel if I'm not in the presence of the Lord, if I'm not getting to be there in his presence because this dry and weary land has no water for my soul. That's what he got from being in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle of David. Profoundly influences life. D, their time spent by David in the tabernacle of David resulted in a renewed commitment to unceasing worship. On David's part. And that's what he says there at the end of Psalm 63, right above there. It's, he says, because of that, I've seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and glory. 
I will praise you as long as I live. He's like, this thing, I'm, I'm doing this. Like, I am not giving up on this. This 24-7 worship thing, this is real, and I'm sticking with it. All right. The tabernacle of David is to be reestablished. So God has promised that he will once again raise up the tabernacle of David, the place of 24-7 worship and prayer. So look at Amos 9-11. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. You say that? We have an Old Testament prophecy after the, the tabernacle of David is gone that says, I'm going to raise it up again. All right, so this prophecy actually has many levels, all right? Have you ever heard of near-far prophecy? Near-far prophecy is something that happens in the Word commonly, and it, it works like this. There's a prophecy given, and there's multiple fulfillments of it, some on the near end, like in the days of the prophet, and the people go, oh, look, that prophecy's been fulfilled, but then actually there's another fulfillment coming, and then it gets fulfilled, and people are like, oh, who knew, like, that, that actually had two fulfillments. Often the, f- the first fulfillment is only partial, and that's a, a way that we can know if something's a near-far prophecy. If only part of it is fulfilled on the near end, then if it's prophecy, the rest of it still has to be fulfilled, right? And so we go, oh, that's a near-far prophecy. So there's multiple levels of fulfillment. That's what's happening in Amos 9-11. All right, so the first coming of Jesus is actually a fulfillment of this prophecy in a spiritual sense. Okay, so... Uh, uh, number two there, Jesus' first coming uh, fulfilled this prophecy in a spiritual fit sense because in Acts fifteen sixteen James is speaking, and he applies this prophecy to the fact that Jesus has made a way for the Gentiles to come to God. Okay? So James applies this prophecy, and you might look at the w- prophecy that I wrote up there, Amos 9, 11, and go, what in the world does that have to do with Gentiles? Well, I didn't put the rest of it. So in Acts fifteen sixteen it goes on to say... Um, that the rest of mankind uh, may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. All right, so the rest of it says that. <coughs> um, and another thing you might go is like, what in the world? How is Jesus the tabernacle of David? Well, the tabernacle of David can also be translated David's fallen tent. Instead of the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, it can also be called David's fallen tent. So remember, David was a king over Israel and rightly king due to his bloodline His descendants were to be kings as well, like Solomon, right? But then there wasn't a king on the throne of Israel, the rightful king, but then Jesus is actually from the bloodline of David, right? Right? He's actually a rightful king of Israel, and that's the restoration of David's fallen tent, is that there's a king from David's tent, from David's line, from David's family, and so the the fulfillment on the near end is the first coming of Jesus, okay? The reestablishment as, of Jesus as king, the rightful king. All right, so number three there. Through the one sacrifice of Jesus, we once again have access to the presence of God where we can worship him in spirit and in truth with no veil separating us from him. Not just one day out of the year, but any time, day or night. Why did I write that? Remember when we did the thing and I said, let's look at this as a chart. We're going to compare Tabernacle of Moses and Tabernacle of David with the, the, I mean, Tabernacle of Moses and the temple with the Tabernacle of David. And we listed all those things that were true over here and the things that were true over here. And we said, you know, what's true of the Tabernacle of David? And we said it's a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
Well, we can go back to that, that list. Which page was that on? Yep, so look at that. Instead of blood sacrifices day after day, there was only one sacrifice that kicked off the tabernacle of David, the one sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus was sacrificed once for all. There is no need for sacrifice anymore. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. The Levites continuously before the presence of the Lord. So again, in the, other, the old way, only one guy could go, and he could only go once a year to get in the presence of the Lord. How often do we have access to the presence of the Lord now? 24-7. The tabernacle of David is a picture of Jesus, all right? And then worship and intercession. Instead of with animals, they're doing worship and intercession with instruments and voices. Guess what? We don't have to do animals anymore, right? Right? We just get to worship the Lord with our voices in spirit and in truth. And there was a veil in the tabernacle of Moses in the temple that separated people from the presence of the Lord. But it wasn't like that in, in the tabernacle of David. You walk in, you're in the presence of the Lord. And guess what? The veil has been torn. Jesus' resurrection, the veil is torn. And there's no veil anymore between man and God. So it is. So Jesus is, his first coming is a, is a partial fulfillment of Amos 9-11, the reestablishment of the tabernacle of David, because the tabernacle of David was a picture of the first coming. But guess what? The tabernacle of David is also a picture of the second coming. It's a prophecy about the second coming and what happens when Jesus returns. So look there in number five. Even today, God is raising up houses of prayer in the spirit of the tabernacle of David that mirror both David's earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle that's coming to earth. So we're actually right now in the in-between time, right? There's been the fulfillment, the first fulfillment of the prophecy. There's coming a complete fulfillment of the prophecy, and we're in that in-between period. And so what we're doing at the house of prayer is something in the spirit of the tabernacle of David that points back to the tabernacle of David, but also points forward to what's to come, points forward to the fulfillment of Amos 9-11. So we, the, the I hop down the road, we are not the fulfillment of Amos 9-11, okay? We are not saying we're the, the fulfillment of Amos 9-11. I don't want anybody, like, getting that impression going, yeah, they're doing... They're doing Amos 9-11. No, we're, we're doing it in the spirit of the tabernacle of David, pointing back to what happened then and pointing forward to what is to come. Okay, but let's look at this. Let's see. We are your kingdom come. We mentioned this the first session. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer is so much bigger than what we make it out to be. Do you think it's possible that Jesus said, hey, I've got a prayer for you to pray? Like when I'm teaching everybody to pray, I'm going to give you the one prayer to pray. You know, when you say, how should we pray? I'm going to give you this prayer, and I want you to pray it from my day until, until just onward. Thousands of years we've been praying it. Do you think there's any chance he gave us that prayer to pray, and what he told us to pray will not be fulfilled? No, right? If he told us to pray it, it's actually the way that he tells us to pray is actually a prophecy, right? If he told us to pray it, it's going to happen, right? This is going to happen. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer is huge because what that means is his kingdom is going to come to earth. His kingdom will fully come to earth 
and his will is going to completely be done on the planet, just as it's done in heaven. And remember that whole heavenly throne room scene with the four living creatures, the 24 elders, unceasing worship. They never stop day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That thing is coming to earth. It is coming to, the, to earth. And I think that, that uh, there's so many believers that have never given any, any study to what happens once Jesus returns. And we just kind of go, can't wait till Jesus returns. Well, what happens then? Not so sure, but I can't wait till it happens. Like, it's like I think we like float off into the sky, and, and then what? Uh, then we're like fat babies in diapers holding harps, plucking them. No, we've got a little bit more in store for us than that. Because actually when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's coming to stay. Did you know that? We don't just float off. We meet him in the air, and then we come back. We come back. Jesus is coming to the earth. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth, but there will always be an earth. And that's actually where we end up on the earth with Jesus. That was his plan all along. Remember in the garden, he was walking with man, God walking with man. That's always been the plan. He hasn't abandoned that plan. No, that's what's going to happen. God on the planet again. And when Jesus returns, there's this thing called the millennial kingdom. Right. And for a thousand years, Jesus is going to be ruling on the planet from Jerusalem. For a thousand years, and you might go, are you making this up? No, I've taught a 12-week class on this. It's not just like a verse or two. It's not just, a, there's 150 chapters on what happens in the end times and then into the millennial kingdom. 150 chapters in your Bible. That's more than all the Gospels put together. 150 chapters. And there's all of these verses about Jesus ruling from Jerusalem, surrounded by worship. And that's what's going to happen. The, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And that heavenly throne room will come down. And Jesus will be worshipped nonstop in Jerusalem. It's going to happen. And that's what Amos 9-11 is talking about. The reestablishment of the tabernacle of David on the earth is going to happen when Jesus is ruling from a th throne in Jerusalem and there's unceasing worship going on. God is coming to the planet and guess how he's doing it? In response to prayer. In response to prayer. That's why he said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven. Because he's only coming in response to prayer. And then look at Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? We are. Right? But what this verse is pointing to is there's coming a day when Jesus is about to return that the body of Christ is understanding itself to be the bride of Christ. Understanding that God desires intimacy with man. Right? Guys, don't think about yourself wearing a wedding dress. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the church realizing God desires an intimate relationship with me. And the church is going to be walking in that identity, understanding that, and crying out in full agreement with who? With the Spirit of God. 
The church in full agreement with the Spirit, understanding that God desires intimacy, going, oh, if you want that, then I want that, God. If you desire intimacy with me, oh, you've got to come. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. We've got to have you. And he's coming back in response to that prayer. That's prayer. He's coming. He's not returning in a vacuum. He's coming back in a bride that's in full partnership with the Spirit of God, crying out for him to come. We're ending here. In session one, we looked at the heavenly pattern of worship and prayer around the throne, and we discussed the fact that it is the desire of God to be surrounded by unceasing worship and prayer. Now we see that when Jesus returns, the Lord pr Lord's prayer will be answered and the heavenly pattern will be manifest on the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. But this is the fun thing. We have the opportunity to enter into that reality and now. We have the opportunity, like because we're aware and because there's a place we can do it, we actually have the opportunity to enter into that reality now. And that's what the house of prayer is about. This is where the whole planet is headed. The whole planet is headed this way. We, we will end up there. Everybody's going to end up there with unceasing worship around the throne, Jesus on the planet being worshiped unceasingly night and day. That's where the whole planet is headed. And we get a little foretaste. We get to enter into it now. That's what I get to do for my job. For my job, I get to do what the whole planet will get to enter into a while down the road. But I get to do it now. It's such an honor, such a privilege that we get to do that thing in the spirit of the tabernacle of David. We're not doing the fulfillment of Amos 9-11, but we're doing a foretaste of what is to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do desire intimacy with us. Lord, would you let us enter into that place where we behold your power and your glory to the point that we're fully convinced this world is never going to satisfy me. There's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy me like you and your presence. Lord, give us that hunger and thirst. Make us a people of one thing, that we can agree with David, one thing, the man after God's own heart. One thing do I desire, to dwell in your house, to behold your glory, behold your beauty, and seek you there in your holy place. Mark us, Lord, as a people of one thing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Oh, thanks. Y'all are sweet. All right. We, Dustin said we have a couple minutes for questions if there's any questions. All right, great. Can we do this instead since we have just a minute? Like if, if this message is touching you in your way, you're like, no, actually, if it's good enough da for David, like, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're coming on staff at the house of prayer. I'm not saying anything like that. But I'm saying like if you're like, no, man, I want to be a person of one thing that like this really, I am one of those people who realizes this world has nothing that's going to satisfy me like that. And I want to have that hunger and passion for the presence of God that David has. I want to invite you to stand so we can pray for you. If you're like, no, this is, this is something I want. I want to be a person of one thing. All right, well, let's just stretch out hands towards one another. Just kind of, yeah, just there you go. All right, we'll pray for one another. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Lord, you have made a way through the precious blood of Jesus, for us to come into your presence, Lord. And we don't want to waste the opportunity that you've given us, Lord, to, to behold you, to be near you, 
to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I'm asking that you would mark each one that's standing. Lord, mark us right now as a people of one thing. Set us apart as a people of one thing. Would you help us to make this our lifelong pursuit, Lord, to be in your presence, Lord, to set aside the things of this world. Lord, maybe to turn off the TV a little more and just get in your presence. To, to turn off social media just a little bit more to worship you, Lord. To, to even say no sometimes to the hanging out, the good time, the, the fun with friends, Lord. Still do that, but to, to, to sometimes say no to that because we're so hungry and thirsty to be in your presence, to behold you. Lord, give us glimpses of you in your throne room that, that just wreck us for the rest of our lives, Lord. And say, no, man, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. Lord, each one, would you mark them even now? Set yourself as a seal upon our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.